Hello, thanks for tuning in to the West Side Podcast. This is where we're going to be posting some of the audio from our gatherings on Sundays, and we're hoping to develop some other content that we're excited to share with you in the future. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus, step by step. And we really hope that this podcast helps you do just that. We hope it helps you get closer to Jesus. We hope that you would be reconciled to God and not only that, be reconciled to the relationships around you and to the city that you live in, wherever that happens to be. Again, thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Yeah, so I'm wearing my, uh, my West Side shirt today because I've had the privilege and the honor of getting to hang out with uh, your kids out, on the, uh, out in church camp, and it's been a lot of fun. Brooks was talking about uh, the opportunity to give, and you know, hanging out with your kids in 98 degrees heat is uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but honestly, you know, it is, it's cool to be here on this side uh, in the air conditioning. Um, and of course, today I'm coming in to preach at 78 degrees and gorgeous outside, so thanks God for that one. <clears throat> All right, so um, today we're talking about something I'm really excited. I have to remember, I literally have it every other line here is to slow down. When I get really excited about something, I tend to speed up. So if I'm talking too fast, somebody just shout out, slow down, brother, and I'll be like, okay, that's you, Diane. Thank you so much. All right, so change, talking about change, right? Change is inevitable, as the saying goes. And oftentimes we have change, little changes that compound over time and they create big changes. They create something that is definitively different. But sometimes that change comes quickly. It comes definitively. There is a discernible before and then after this change. These changes throughout history, they're like markers. What they are is they're pinpoints of moments where we can say that things will never be the same. In 1962, American physicist and philosopher Thomas Kuhn defined this particular concept of a momentous shift in understanding. He called it a paradigm shift. Let's talk about what a paradigm shift is. Paradigm shift is an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way. Let's look at some examples throughout history of what would be considered a paradigm shift. This is what Thomas Kuhn put together. Uh, The first one is Copernicus's heliocentric astronomy with the idea that the uh, the sun is actually at the center of our uh, solar system, not the earth. Aristotle's physics, Galileo's mechanics, the medieval theory of the four humors in medicine, Isaac Newton's theory of gravity, John Dalton's atomic theory, Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, quantum mechanics, the theory of plate tectonics in geology, germ theory in medicine, gene theory in biology, and the list does go on. Right, these are moments in which throughout society, throughout history, all of a sudden an idea was presented that changed everything. There is a problem with paradigm shifts though. There's a problem that we have and we encounter when we look at these paradigm shifts. And that is this, if you weren't around to experience them, if you weren't around to experience the paradigm shift, the magnitude of this shift is much harder to perceive and appreciate. Right? If you weren't there to have seen the before and understand what the after was, 
we can see it as being a lot more ho-hum than it actually would have been when it revolutionized things. In order to experience the magnitude of what the shift was, we have to understand what happened, what, what, what life was like, what thoughts were before things shifted. Today, we're gonna be going over the first verse of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus dropped a paradigm shift bombshell that changed everything forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather here tonight. Father, we ask that you would walk with us through your scriptures. Jesus, that you would be with us as we take the time to understand the significance of the Lord's prayer and why it makes such a big difference to us now. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me or in spite of me. Lord, help my words be good communications to the people here. But Lord, most importantly, let your will be done. Help us understand your heart and everything that you did here on earth to teach us how we can interact with you. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So modern Christianity today, right? We are absolutely comfortable with calling God our father. Some people, even in their, their vernacular, they, they use the Hebrew word for father, which is Abba. Some even express an even more familiarity with God by calling him things like daddy God or papa God. You might've heard some. I know there's some people out here who's like, yeah, I was just having a conversation with daddy God. And that level of familiarity, that like pet name in a way of, of that relationship, that familiarity with, with calling God and referencing him as, as father, in Jesus' time, that very thought, the very outward expression of that thought would have gotten you killed. That seems a little excessive, you might say, right? Like just calling God father might've gotten you killed. But actually this is one of the main reasons why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. Do you know that? We're gonna take a look here. This is John 5.18. It says in the Bible itself, that was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, right? They wanted to kill him because he was expressing a relationship with God as a father that was completely unknown at that time. In fact, it would have been completely blasphemous. Were the Jews justified in this thinking? That's the question. What was God, refer, was God referred to in the common culture at that time as a father before Jesus entered into the scene? Let's take a look at it. The Old, Test, the Old Testament seldom used the word father as a description of God, but there are two important moments in text in the scriptures in which it does do so. Both of them are found towards the end of Isaiah and occur in the context of sin and repentance. We're gonna take a look at them. The first one reads like this, it's Isaiah 63. It says, you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. So if you look here in the scripture, you can see Isaiah is very clearly saying you are our father. And later on, he says, you are our redeemer right? Those two things are interesting, but those were very rare occurrences. God was actually called redeemer a lot more often than he was called a father. The next example comes just one verse or one chapter later in Isaiah, Isaiah 64, where Isaiah says, O Lord, you are our father. 
We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. So when we look at this situation, right, we see the word father, especially that capital F father. Some of the, the terminology might be father is in the creator, right? Like Israel, uh, Isaiah is calling God the creator, the father of all. But this was not true in this particular context because God was the father of every living being, every creature, every human being God created. So this was more than referring to God purely as a creator. What we can actually see, especially in that previous text, is a very specific word that comes in that gives us the context that we need to understand why Isaiah was calling God Father. It was that God made a covenant with Israel. He was their redeemer. For Isaiah to call God Father was to acknowledge the special relationship that God had with his people, separate from the rest of the human race. God wasn't just creator, he was redeemer. He paid the price to make Israel his own, and thus God's attitude towards Israel was unique, right? He didn't make a covenant with all of the other nations. He made a covenant with Israel specifically. The parallels to fatherhood are there, but they were rarely explicit. (laughs) excuse me, and rarely ever specifically addressing God as father. If you look, here's an example of Psalm 103, 13. Scripture says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You can see the parallel being drawn, right? As a father does this, so does the Lord do this. But it's not directly calling God father. Certainly not Abba, the context that Jesus called God. In this case, God's fatherhood is expressed in that covenant context. And the parallels are drawn within that covenant context. But outside of it, there is no other example of fatherhood, of God being dressed specifically. So then Jesus came along to make it personal and he died for it. Before we dive into Jesus versus the Jews though, what we also wanna look at is the other religions that were, that were prevalent during Jesus' day to see if in common culture at that time, there would have been another analogous opportunity for Jesus to compare God as a father, right? <clears throat> so non-Jewish people were already familiar with the concept of a divine father figure. Jupiter, the Roman god of sky and thunder, Jupiter means Father Jove, right? What's funny is that when they actually look into it, why Jupiter was called Father Jove, they don't really know why it was Father Jove. Father, again, was as like as Jupiter being kind of a Zeus analogy. There was the creation element of it, but Jupiter did not exhibit any tendencies that would normally be ascribed to him as being a father. Platonists, so people who followed the teachings of Plato, they saw their father and they actually had a father God where they named, they used the word father, but he was a hidden deity who dwelt above the heavens and had no direct contact with material things. In fact, the Platonists saw the world as imperfect. They saw it as imperfect and their father, their creator, their person who is above all of things was perfect and so therefore could not interact with that which he created. So their father could not be, because their father would not be capable of being around imperfect things. 
So even in common culture at the time, although there were gods who were being called or being ascribed the name father, they were never being used as a parallel between a real father and a child, a father to his son or a father to his daughter. This was not common in the vernacular of describing God or describing a deity. So then Jesus comes along with his prayer, right? And he ushers in that paradigm shift. He ushers in that before and after as his presence. He starts his prayer, one of the most famous passages in the Bible outside of John 3.16 with the words, our father. Two powerful words that changed everything forever. <coughs> Excuse me. First of all, the word our This is not a way of saying hello, like dear God. We might think of it sometimes when we say our father, like we're saying dear God, right? This is a statement meant to remind us of a bigger truth. Jesus is setting a standard by which we are to refer and understand that God is not a God of the few or the elite, not meant for kings or high priests, but rather that he is ours making himself available for all. When he opened this by saying the word our, he is inviting everyone to come into this attitude of prayer, not specific people, not you, but not you, but you, but not you, our inclusive all, our father. The next word he says is father. Just like this, this is not our God or our lofty individual or our unknown one or our deity, but our father. Why specifically would God address and start his prayer off by using a parallel to something that nobody else was using? Paradigm shift. Jesus coming to earth is the literal representation of the breaking down of barriers between God and man. Let me say that again. Jesus coming to earth is the literal representation, the manifestation of that barrier that once separated God and man being broken. Jesus came to establish a new relationship between creator and creation. He said this specifically in a couple times in scriptures. I and the Father are one, Jesus says in John 10.30. He who has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says again in John 10.30. He has come to reveal himself to us and to help us understand what the Father is like, what our God is like. Jesus has a unique relationship with God the Father that he came to share with his followers. He came to share that relationship with us. And thus, the opening of his prayer shows that exact direction, shows that exact purpose. That's the paradigm shift. Through Jesus, we can refer to God as Father, and we can adopt all the benefits that come as being one of God's children, redeemed by God through the blood of Jesus. Jesus is showing us in this prayer that not only is it appropriate, but it is beneficial to approach God as his children. 
in a perfectly acceptable relationship between father and child. This is so fundamentally different from any kind of prayer that was being performed during that day. That's what I was going back to say. When you think about the before of a paradigm shift, the before of the paradigm shift was the context of relating with God through priests, through the tabernacle, of, of affecting religious service and right. And all of a sudden, Jesus is coming along and he's opening up a prayer in a way that makes it feel casual. By saying, our father, it makes it feel familial. It makes it feel familiar, our Father. When we understand the magnanimity of this type of prayer, how bold and how revolutionary it would be for anyone in prayer to approach God as Father, then we start to understand the magnanimity of this paradigm shift. Everything Jesus did was to unify us to God so we, can join, so he, we could join him in this relationship in John 20, 17, I love this verse. It is so powerful. Do not cling to me, Jesus says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Do you realize and understand how powerful that is for him to say that? That he is inviting us that his Father is our Father, his God is our God. Paradigm shift. Jesus goes on in this verse, in, the, in his prayer. He starts off by saying, our Father. And then he says, who art in heaven. <clears throat> God isn't just our Father. He's our spectacularly wealthy, powerful, generous, impressive God of heaven. The Greek translation means literally the one in the skies or based on its intended meaning, the one in the heavens. We are addressing God directly by speaking to the part of his nature that is outside of our experience. As we do not dwell in the skies, we do not dwell in the heavens. We lift up our voices to the one who is with us, but also above us, outside of us, outside of time, outside of decay, outside of our understanding. He is our God who makes heaven his throne. When we remind ourselves through this prayer that God is otherworldly, every time we pray, it helps us remember our context and our place, not just as his children, but rather as mere moments in time. In the context of heaven, we are a small blip in the story. And when we pray and remind ourselves, our Father who art in heaven, we remind ourselves of our place. Finally, Jesus finishes this opening salvo of, a, of what a revolutionary prayer by saying, hallowed be thy name. Armed with these two life-altering realities that God is our Father and his dwelling is in heaven and it defies imagination, how are we to respond how do we respond to a God who changed the, who fundamentally changed the nature of our relationship? We respond by giving him honor. Hallowed, what does hallowed mean, the word hallowed? It means to make holy, to be greatly revered and honored. To make holy, that implies an active participation, right? To make something holy means you get to participate in the making of it being holy. To make something holy means to set it apart. So we have to do something. We are being invited to do something. 
What does it mean to make a name holy? Names are important to God. In Jewish culture, names were not simply a way to call a person, but rather names were meant to reflect a person's character, to show the essence of his or her identity, and to declare that person's destiny. The cultural practice is seen when God changed Jacob's name after they wrestled through the night. The name Jacob meant heel catcher or trickster, but God changed his name to Israel, meaning one who strives with God. We see it again in John 1.42, when Jesus changed one of his disciples' names from Simon, meaning one who hears, to Peter, which means rock. The reason that Jews, including Jesus, expressed reverence to God's name is because of the way that the name represents the person to whom it belongs. Saying that God's name is holy or expressing reverence towards his name is the same thing as declaring God himself to be holy and wholly worthy of all our praise and all our honor. I love this. This is Revelation 7, 12. When we do this, when we say, hallowed be thy name, we're joining the angels in saying blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is what we do when we say, hallowed be thy name. We declare the truth about who God is to him and to us.